Hey everybody, I'm Zoe. And I'm Chandi. And this is Bound by the Cloak. You might have heard that it's really hard to find a safe deposit box nowadays. Many banks are eliminating them as a service to their customers. Uh, most recently, Chase Bank no longer offers safe deposit boxes to its new customers. And other banks such as HSBC, Barclays, and Capital One have also eliminated that service as well. If you're wondering where to keep your family heirlooms, your stacks of cash, or multiple passports, well, we might just have the answer for you. Today on the podcast, we have Dave McGuinn. Dave McGuinn is the founder and president of Safe Deposit Specialists, a nationally recognized financial consulting firm that has been around since 1969. Safe Deposit Specialists offers safe deposit training, products, and services to the financial industry all across America. Dave, if you could introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself. Super. I appreciate the opportunity to, to speak to you today. Just to introduce myself, I've got a company here in Houston, Texas called Safe Deposit Specialist. Uh, when I say Houston, Texas, that's a little bit incorrect because I only live in Houston, Texas on Saturday and Sunday. This is my office right here. I'm not sure you can see that, but I travel the entire United States. I go to all, all the states to present safe deposit training programs. been doing it for about 40 years. Got started doing this many, many years ago when I was a uh, lifeguard in a swimming pool between semesters in college to to become an architect. And in the third year of my college on the pool I was lifeguarding, a president of a local bank walked up one day and said, Mr. McGuinn, you've been recommended to us by the superintendent of schools in this district as hiring you as a trainee for our bank. And I looked at that gentleman and I looked out at the pool and I had a little whistle around my neck. And I said, you want me to give up looking at all these pretty ladies in bikinis to come to work at your bank and be a stuffy banker? And he said, well, it does have a future. I said, a little more than what you have here. And he, I agreed with him. So I went to work uh, many, many years ago. Uh, that was in the early 60s. Worked in, at the bank for 20 years. And during that 20 years, I uh, was fortunately promoted on a regular basis. And my final promotion was senior vice president cashier of the bank. In that position, they gave me a list of all the departments that would report to me in that position. And on that list was the safe deposit department. The safe deposit department is something I knew nothing about. All I knew was I had a, a vault in my basement that had 3,000 safe deposit boxes. I knew most of those boxes were rented by consumers. And I know I had a lady sitting outside that vault that had some keys in her desk. And together, those ladies, that lady, and those uh, those box owners used those keys to get in their box. And that's all I knew about it. Well, I figured there was a, something a little more. So I started doing a little research and found a seminar that was being offered by the American Institute of Banking, six weeks long, three hours a night, one night a week. And when I saw how long that program was, I started laughing. I said, who can talk about this simple service we have in our basement for that length of time? So I signed up, went to that program for six weeks, one night a week, three hours a night. I was scared to death because everything I found out in that program, we were finding I was doing at my bank incorrectly. And we were setting ourselves up on a daily basis to be sued. And nobody in the bank knew that. Well, at the end of that seminar, I was forced to be made honor student. Not because I'm brilliant. I was scared to death. And I came back every day and started making changes. So in doing that, uh, they asked me if I'd like to teach that course. I was president of the American Institute of Bank at that time. And I said, I'd be glad to. And I taught that course for 11 years as a banker, three hours a night for six weeks for 11 years. And in 1980, I left the bank. I left the bank to, to basically start uh, my own company. And my own company wasn't related to safe deposit. It was opening new charter banks all over the United States. And it was a very successful company. We, I was there for about 10 years. We opened about 300 new banks. We were written up on the front page of uh, some pretty national magazines. And because of that, I stayed pretty successful in that, in that company. Had that company until 1989 when I left the bank, when the, the banking industry stopped, started closing banks rather than opening them. And I started a publishing company because I've been writing lots of books during that period of time on how you run a safe deposit area properly. And through that publishing company, I was uh, elected uh, president of the American Safe Deposit Association, the Texas Safe Deposit Association, the Houston Safe Deposit Association. And I traveled basically all over the United States speaking to those people. And it was a very large organization. So anyway, that's how I got started doing this. Been doing it a long, long time. So you are the guy. Right now, I'm the only guy. <laughs> of course, I've got a website that has about 80 different products on it. I've got all these publications that tell people how to run a department, how not to run a department. And yeah, I am the guy right now. And I get calls and emails and requests from all of the United States because of that. This is such a niche field and, you know, you kind of entered it by chance, but what made you want to continue in it? 
Well, it's an interesting subject, and uh, fortunately, it's been a very good profession. Like I say, I, I travel nationwide doing these training seminars. I do audits in banks and credit unions all over the United States. I've got a website with all those products on it that's very successful and get orders on a daily basis on that. Uh, I've got uh, right now 17 cases where I've been hired as a, a consultant or an expert witness in safe deposit lawsuits where consumers have lost things out of their safe deposit box, and they're looking for somebody to help them recover those things. I've got a safe deposit question and answer hotline. It is so popular right now. I have over a thousand subscribers to this thing. When they have a problem in their bank or credit union, they pick up the phone, they call me, and we, we talk. And there's only a fee charge when I try to help them with, with those problems. Rather than call their attorney, it's going to charge them $700 an hour. We talked about how you got into this field, but what is it that you actually do? What does your job entail? 90% of my business is training, training people on how to run and operate their safe deposit area and reduce their potential liability. This is the only service that a financial organization offers where they don't know what their liability is, and liability is unlimited. If somebody says somebody's missing out of their box, what's going to be missing? What are we going to be sued for? $100 or a $1 million? And those are the type of cases I get involved with. So it seems like safe deposit boxes are well known, but what are some of the biggest misconceptions people have about safe deposit boxes? The absolute biggest misconception about safe deposit is consumers think that their contents are insured. They think they have $250,000 worth of insurance on anything they put in that safe deposit box. And the reason for that, when they walk into a branch office of a savings loan or a credit union, what kind of signs do they see on every teller location, every new account desk, FDIC insured and deposits insured up to 250000 by NCUA, National Association of Credit Unions, FDIC, Federal in Insurance Corporation. They think that that applies to the safe deposit department because no one is telling them anything different. Because of that, I came up with what I call a no insurance disclosure kit that I thought was so valuable to these individuals. And it's being used now by thousands of financial organizations nationwide where we post signs right by the vault door. We put them in viewing rooms where people go in to look at their items. We put little desk signs right beside the FDIC signs that say insurance is your responsibility. If anything turns up missing out of your box, you need to insure it yourself, just like you would if it was at your home. That's the biggest misconception that exists all over the United States. So for people that don't know or don't use safe deposit boxes, what is a safe deposit box and what is a vault? A safe deposit box is just a little metal container that goes into a slot in a section of boxes inside a vault. That's the best definition I can give you about what a safe deposit box is. A vault is a secure area within a financial organization with a vault door and security systems and something to protect uh, the items that are inside there. It not only protects the consumer's items, it also protects the bank's assets, their, their reserve cash and things like that. So those are those like giant heavy doors, right, for the vault with all the locks and you have to turn it and open it, right? That's right. That, I think that's what most people think of when they think of a vault. Yeah. And the larger the door, the more impressive it is and more secure the individual thinks. I've seen the round vault doors. I've seen square vault doors. I've seen all kinds of doors. But that projects an image of safety. And that's what this whole concept is about. That's why they get the word safe and, and put that in the terminology. And you're saying they are pretty safe, the bigger they are. Uh, the bigger the door, <laughs> the harder it is to get through it, yes. Any any door out there is pen penetratable. Uh, but if I'm if I'm a burglar, I'm going to go through the door. I'm going to go through the wall. That's a little uh, wall that's sometimes anywhere from two to three feet thick. And it takes a while to get through there. But there's tools out there you can you can rent at a tool supply store that construction people go to. They'll drill a hole in those walls in a matter of hours. How is the wall reinforced? Typically, uh, there's steel reinforcement. Uh, and back in 1968, they came up with a regulation called the Bank Protection Act of 1968 that basically specified how thick that wall had to be, what kind of uh, steel had to be, rebar that had to be inside of it, uh, and how, how big uh, and rated that vault door needed. It, it had all kinds of regulations about the security advice or whatever. Unfortunately, in 1991, somebody up in the government decided that's too much regulation, so they did away with all that. And when they did away with it, it created a new industry called self-service safe deposit box, where they're not putting these boxes inside vaults anymore. They're sitting right in the middle of a lobby where the cleaning people can walk by when they clean the, the, the bank and the, the branch at night. Wow, I had no idea. No, nobody does. <laughs> is there a company that is known for making safe deposit boxes and even vault doors and vaults? Is that like a standard thing? 
There are. There, there are several companies out there. The, the largest company is a company called Devo, Devo International, and they're they're noted for their ATMs. They're, they've got ATMs all over the world, but they also are a big supplier of vault doors, uh, safe deposit boxes, security devices, and they're also a promoter of this silly self-service safe deposit boxes, which unfortunately is not safe. The smallest box you will probably find in any financial organization is a three-inch by five-inch by 22 inch container. That's the smallest one. And the biggest typical safe deposit box is a 10 inch by 10 inch by 22 inch container. That's what, what your selection is when you go in. And those prices on those things range anywhere from $25 a year for a small one, to maybe $150, $200 a year for a big one. There's waiting lists right now for those boxes. And what are safe deposit boxes and vaults made out of? The, the boxes themselves usually are made out of aluminum, steel or plastic. And again, depending on what, what amount of money you want to spend will determine what kind of box you get. The plastic ones are terrible. They bend, they they warp, they do all kinds of crazy. That's the cheapest. You get what you paid for there. The steel and aluminum boxes are probably the most popular. And that's the ones you find in the very old banks that have been there for a hundred years. And those boxes are still in the same condition because they're just used going in and out of that slot. Uh, the vaults, they're made out of concrete. They're made out of sh- uh, steel. If you, you're opening a new branch in an existing building, you can't pour concrete concrete in the basement to pull this, put this vault. So you hire a company to come in and make a steel liner. They make an actual steel box that goes in a corner or a section of that basement. And that's where you put those boxes. And the steel is something like all oh, three or four or five inches thick. I mean, it's it's heavy, heavy steel. That's that's typically what you'll find in, in most branches. There's been a lot going on recently in terms of banks getting rid of safe deposit boxes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I can. And I'm getting all kinds of calls and interviews and different questions about what's going on. And I'm getting calls from consumers that have gotten letters from their financial organization coming and close their box. And I'm a perfect example. I got a letter like that from my financial organization here in Houston that said, we're getting out of the business, coming and close your box. And I'd had my box there for 25 years, 25 years. I was a little upset with them because this is my business, by the way. And if they do away with it, my my business goes too. So anyway, I, I went in and I closed my box. And I also closed every account that I had with the financial organization because I, I really didn't feel any value in, in having that, that box there or my accounts either. So anyway, let me give you a little history about safe deposit. This this is not a new service. Uh, this service started back in 1861, over 160 years ago, by a gentleman up in New York City named Francis H. Jenks. Mr. Jenks was an entrepreneur. He saw a need for a safe place for consumers to put their valuables. So he found a building and he put some little containers inside that building. And he advertised this as the first safe deposit company started in the world, in the United States. And it was. So it was an immediate success because he guaranteed all these consumers that if they came in and rented a box, they were renting a box in a burglar-proof vault. Burglar-proof. He guaranteed that because he had armed guards with muskets on the top of that that building to protect the, uh, the, the entry into the building. And he said, if anybody tries to break in, we have boiling water on the top of that building that we're just going to pour that on. And people believed him. And he was an overnight success. The following year in Boston and in Philadelphia, they started opening facilities there. And all of a sudden, the whole United States started getting peppered. And, and all these, these branches started opening all over the United States because it was successful and a need was being filled. So that's that's how it all got started. And it has grown and grown and grown over the last 160 years uh, into what the industry has today. When I was talking to a few people, I'm like, we're going to be talking to the only guy in the in the business. And they were asking if safe deposit boxes are no longer going to be offered. Where do we keep our stuff? That's a good question. And the options are out there. And let, let me just mention the people that are doing away with safe deposit boxes are not all the financial organizations. They're the big mega banks, big, big, big mega banks like Capital One, Barclays Bank, uh, HSBC, Citibank, Chase Banks uh, basically sent out letters to 4,700 of their branches and said, we're getting rid of safe deposit boxes. Get rid of those boxes in your, in your, in your vault. So again, this is where it's, the trend is going, but it's only with the big mega banks. I've also had conversations with Wells Fargo, Bank of America, and other large financial organizations that are also thinking about doing the same thing, which good and bad on this. They're not my clients. They don't attend my seminars. Uh, they don't train their people. And they're the ones that are getting sued right and left because they're doing things wrong. And that's another reason they're getting out of the business. As far as where do the people go when they get that letter from Chase or Wells Fargo or, or some other big uh, mega bank? They go to a consumer bank. They go to their credit union. 
because those are my clients. Those are the people that have waiting lists now in all their vaults because consumers are coming in asking for this service. And the, the waiting lists are the big 10 by 10 boxes that I mentioned to you earlier, because that's what most financial or most consumers are needing because they have a lot of stuff that they want to keep safe because they don't want to leave in their house. And consumers are now investing heavily in gold and silver and other precious metals. Where do you put that stuff? Not in your closet. You put it in a safe place. And that's a safe deposit box or inside of a vault. Speaking of um, what people keep in their safe deposit boxes, what are some of the most commonly found items that you've you know seen in safe deposit boxes that you know people put in their boxes? The most common items that I see in most consumer safe deposit—I don't see them, but I'm hearing oh, yeah. that these are being stored. They're estate and estate documents like wills and living trusts and positions directives, things that they really want to keep in a safe, safe place. So if something happens to them, their family knows where to go. It's a central location. Uh, in addition to that, people are investing uh, now in uh, in stocks and bonds and whatever. This as a place to keep those things. Real estate documents like deeds and leases and life insurance policies, retirement papers, things like this, paper documents. This is a, something that, again, they want to keep in a central location. So if something does happen to them, mom or their, their kids know where to go. Jewelry is probably one of the biggest things consumers keep in their safe deposit box because they don't want to leave it at their house for fear of a burglary or a break-in or whatever. And there's lots of cash being stored in boxes right now. And to clear up a myth right here, there is no law against keeping cash in your safe deposit box. The misconception that consumers have comes from an organization called the Internal Revenue Service. They have a regulation that says you will not conceal cash from the United States government and not pay tax on it. If you really analyze what people are putting in boxes, their coin collections, their Kruger ends, cash that they have saved and they've, they've paid tax on, on what they how they got it, they're not breaking the law. So they haven't broken any law by putting it in there. They just want to keep it safe. So lots and lots of cash. There's billions of dollars in cash right now in safe deposit boxes, which unfortunately is kind of an enticement for uh, burgers to break in. Some of the uh, other things that are in there would be collectible items like stamp collections and coin collections and things like this. I did represent one gentleman who had a very, very valuable collection of baseball cards that he'd been collecting since he was six years old. He just collected and collected. He had a, a, a collection that was worth over a million dollars. He put it inside a safe deposit box and the vault flooded. When he walked in to get his baseball cards, he pulled them out. You know, the bubble gum that you put in baseball cards, all this pink stuff started dripping out of the bottom of his cards. Every one of them were ruined. He hired me to show and, and try to prove negligence on the part of the financial organization. We're still working on that case, by the way. But again, there's a lot of things like that in boxes that uh, if this gentleman had insured it, he would he would have had an out. He didn't. And that's the unfortunate thing. I mean, I have never thought about the fact that there'd be a flood or anything like that. I think the thought that I would have is that somebody would, you know, try and gain access to my safe deposit box. But yeah, clearly there are other things that you have to worry about when you have a safe deposit box in the vault at a bank. Flood is even larger liability and exposure than, than burglary. I've worked wow. with probably 250 banks in, in and around the United States that have all gone underwater. And it will ruin your day when you go in that next Monday morning, water starts pouring out of your vault behind your vault door. Is that regional? Like certain parts of the country prone to floods. So do they have like flood insurance? Do the banks need that? Well, the bank have insurance, but it only insures their bank. It doesn't insure what's in that safe deposit vault. There's no way they can prevent water from entering the safe deposit. There's no waterproof vault. There's no waterproof door. There's no waterproof anything because water is going to get in. You've got conduits going through the wall that carry your, your alarm system and your phone system and lighting and whatever. Well, if, uh, if your vault fill, or your basement fills up with water, that water is going to get in those conduits. It's going to fill that little ba uh, that vault just like a swimming pool. When you open that door, get out of the way because it's going to be a gush of water. Water coming out and cover you. It's a mess. I've been there and worked with a lot of these institutions. Do most people have insurance on their items or they don't? I'm assuming they don't. Uh, the typical safe deposit renter uh, is, uh, again, that's the biggest mis biggest misunderstanding. Unless it's properly disclosed to them, no, they don't. Uh, they okay. just assume that if something happens, the word safe means everything in there is safe and I've got insurance. So it's it's kind of a misconception. So that's why that no insurance disclosure kit I mentioned earlier is so popular because that reduces the bank's liability. So if somebody comes in and says, you didn't tell me, well, Mr. Quinn, I gave you a disclosure statement. I have signs posted everywhere. Why do you think we insured it? We can't because we don't know what you put in there. So there's no way in the world we can insure what's inside your box. So they have no idea what's in your box? No, and they shouldn't. The last thing in the world you want is yeah, an employee knowing what is in Dave McGuinn's box. I'll guarantee you, if Dave McGuinn yeah. 
says something's missing, who am I going to point my finger at? Exactly. The lat little lady over there that I told her I had 15 Krugerrands <laughs> in my box, and now they're all gone. So no, you don't want to know what's in those boxes. And, and I stress to the my my students and all the people who attend my seminars, just stay as far away from those people when they handle their transact. Put them in a viewing, a private viewing room every time and let them do their transactions in yeah. private so we can't be accused of having knowledge. What are some of the biggest reasons besides liability issues that banks are getting rid of safe deposit boxes, the mega banks, like you said? Some of the biggest reasons started a couple of years ago. Remember the thing we call the pandemic? It was the biggest headache a financial organization had because this is the only service that requires you to let the person into your facility. To get into a safe deposit box back in the pandemic, you had to make an appointment. You had to have a special protection for these people. Everyone was face, wearing face masks and rubber gloves and all kinds of crazy things. So again, it was a, it was kind of a struggle to offer this service to consumers. That's kind of where it started. Everybody started thinking, is this really worthwhile? I worked with some of the institutions where we built plexiglass hallways from the front door all the way to the vault area just to keep these people away from everybody else and away from any germs or whatever. It was it was wild and presented seminars on how to handle these transactions, how to set up appointments, how to protect the uh, consumer, how to protect your employees, and how to really handle these things properly. Because again, it's the only service that requires you to let that person through that door. Everything else you can use by phone and text and emails and all these transactions, filling out loan applications, uh, but not this service. It requires you to be personally present to let those people in. Uh, that's where it all got started. And then we had uh, a lot of concern about the construction costs. To build a safe deposit vault or offer a safe deposit, you got to build a vault. The most expensive square footage you can put in any financial organization is the vault area. Every other department, every other section of that building is moderately expensive. But you figure you got to you got to pour a concrete uh, vault. You got to go out and buy a big steel door. You got to uh, put in a security system. Then you got to house it with thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of little bond uh, boxes with a little bond tents in it. So by the time you add all that up, it's a very expensive uh, endeavor. So they started thinking, well, uh, why are we spending all this money? We're not getting a whole lot of income out of it. Twenty five dollars a year for a little tiny box. Uh, so they they said that. Uh, that was not something they wanted to do. And then we had the unfortunate case of lawsuits and disappearance claims, poorly trained employees, poor record keeping. And then they started thinking, we're not, we're going to have to spend more money on more money on training these people. Let's just get rid of the service. And that's where all this got started. But it all started with the pandemic. I never would have thought it would have started with the pandemic and, and <laughs> all of that. Um, that's... <laughs> That was a very, very busy time for me. <laughs> it, <laughs> I it just created a turmoil in the industry. And so how did the consumer handle situations with their safe deposit boxes during that time? I mean, obviously, the banks are handling handling things, trying to put in safety measures and, and you know, expensive ways to allow people to get to their safe deposit boxes, everything that you have to do. But yeah, how did the average consumer deal with that, that reality of having to go through so many different steps just to get to their safe deposit boxes during? the pandemic. They didn't have an option. They had to accept it. And with all the publicity and all of the, the warnings and the things that uh, they were reading and seeing, they, they accepted it. And, and they just went kind of long. Well, they didn't like it, but they accepted right. it. And they made their appointments and they showed up on time. If they missed the appointments, they got really upset because now they had to wait to make another <laughs> yeah. appointment because they had people waiting behind them to get in, yeah. to go in. It was a pretty traumatic time for all the consumers and the banks. We talked about the most commonly found items. What are some of the things that people don't really think they'd find or don't really think other people would put in a safe deposit box? One of the most unusual things, not unusual, but probably one of the creepiest things, the ashes of the dearly departed. When you have your ashes put in a, a little urn, the urn doesn't fit in the safe deposit box. So they were dumping the ashes in the little containers. And the poor bankers, when they drilled that box for passing rent, were pulling that thing out and they were opening it up. All they saw was the ashes. And I kept cautioning them. I said, that's not drugs. Do not reach in there and start sniffing or tasting that stuff. That's the ashes of Sweet Miss Tilly when she passed away. So that was some of the uh, things I was hearing from the bankers they were, they were locating. We found uh, the umbilical cords of little babies zip in little Ziploc bags. They, they don't want to throw those away, so they threw them in there. We found a lot of false teeth. When you have a new plate made, you don't want to throw the old one away in case the new one breaks. So they put that in the safe deposit box. Uh, I had one financial organization call me, and they found deer legs wrapped up in uh, white butcher paper that were stuffed inside this large safe deposit box. And the most unusual and the most valuable thing I've ever heard any financial organization found was found right here in the state of Texas. Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Rider hat was found in a drill pass-through safe deposit box. 
Okay, that one's kind of cool. <laughs> I got a call from that bank that said, "What do we do with this?" And I said, "You call the historical <laughs> group, and it's in a it's in a museum now in this in in Austin, uh, wow, you know, on display." But for some reason, they they either did, forgot about it or the people died or whatever, and it it became uh, unclaimed property in our state. Those are just a few of the things that I, I've heard about. <laughs> Uh, some of the things I can't tell you on this on this in this interview that we found that uh, should not have been put in safe deposit box. Oh, I can only imagine. One guy kept all of his Playboy magazines in there. He spent a lot of time in the viewing rooms when he came into the bank. Oh, <laughs> you can do that yeah. at home. That's... Yeah, we're not, yeah, we're not we're not sure what he was doing at the bank. <laughs> wow. <ahead>. Okay. <laughs> Who had Roosevelt's hat? Eddie Roosevelt's Rough Rider hat. Yes, that's amazing. That's cool. That's, that's cool. Coolest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. Obviously, you know, if people aren't paying right on time for their safe deposit box, then, you know, I assume the contents would then be up for auction. If you don't pay and you don't redeem after your box has been drilled, it is reported to the state as unclaimed property. And the unclaimed property division in every state, your state, my state, all of the United States, has thousands and thousands of pieces of contents that have come out of boxes. Or the 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 cash that they actually auctioned the things after they received them and put that in a in a in a database under the name of Dave McGuinn. I know that because here in Texas, I, I looked at the uh, their website and I put in my name just as a search and I found my name. Had no idea why it was there, but uh, it was, I had $60 on deposit with the uh, state of Texas. I filled out the little form to redeem my $60 and they sent me a check. Following week, I went back in and I found my son's name. I called my son and I said, hey, boy, are you aware you've got something like $600 in, in the unclaimed property department database? I said, you need to fill out a form. To show you how intelligent my son is, he said, Dad, that's a that's a sting operation. They get you for all your unpaid parking tickets if you, if you make the claim. I said, well, okay, <laughs> just leave it there. And it's still there right now, as far as I know. Anyway, that it's it's something that consumers need to do on a regular basis. Just check all your family's names. And I, I found nephews, I found cousins, and I found all kinds of people that have just, I mean, it comes from life insurance policies, yeah. uh, companies, and uh, insurance companies. It, it's, it's, a, it's a vast, vast database. Yeah, I've I've looked myself up um, and family members. Did you members. find yourself? Yeah. <laughs> Shonda, you need to do that. <laughs> do what? There's the, um, every state has like a website. You search your, you go in and search your name and it'll tell you if you have unclaimed property. Usually it's money or something like that. It's interesting to see how many names are on thousands and thousands of names. Yeah. What are some things that you as a professional think people should keep in safe deposit boxes, but most don't? My standard sock answer is anything you consider valuable and irreplaceable and hard to replace. Those are the things you need to keep in a safe deposit box. Sentimental items, medals, rewards, things that you really want to keep safe and pass on to your your kids and their kids and whatever. Uh, so it just doesn't disappear. But that's that's my stock entry. But again, uh, anything you like your uh, estate documents, your medical documents, your retirement documents, your uh, real estate documents, that's the safest place in the world you can keep those things and, and have easy access to them. The one thing you don't want to put in there is your passport. Unless you, unless you just travel once a year, if you travel a lot like I do, keep that passport out because your bank's going to be closed on Saturday or Sunday, maybe, and you're going to be leaving on Monday and you're not going to leave without that that document. You're going to miss your airplane flight too. I can tell you that for a a true story. (laughs) Always have that with you. Absolutely. What are some of the challenges that banks have in monitoring safe deposit boxes and, and vaults? Well, probably the most important challenge is let's make sure all of our staff is properly trained, that they're giving out the right answers. They're letting the right people in their safe deposit box. They're 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 uh, keeping a, a good, accurate control on our record keeping and our, our, our documentation of who owns that box and whether the rent's due or not due or whatever. You need to make sure your security is up to date. Uh, that vault security is probably the most important thing if you ever have a burglary, because they're going to come back and question how, how often that thing is tested, make sure it's running properly. How often it's been updated to make sure it's the latest state-of-the-art? Do you have people trained uh, to shut that vault door correctly and, and handle these things correctly? All those things are important. And best thing we can do is make sure we pay proper attention to that, that area. Safe deposit has been a stepchild in financial organizations for over the history. Doesn't make a whole lot of money, so management doesn't pay a whole lot of attention to it. Uh, they look at it periodically. They, they check the audit reports maybe once a year, but make sure that the management is aware that we need to make sure this thing is being controlled and, and operated properly, and we're still on top of it. So we're not surprised if something happens later and we get served with some big lawsuit. How safe is one safe deposit box? And how safe is a vault at a bank? 
That's hard to say. It's hard to, to determine. And that question was asked to me by a TV show called 2020 several years ago. And they said, is there any way a consumer can test to see how safe that area is where they're putting the most valuable items they possess? And I said, well, right now there's not, but there will be next week. So I developed what I call my safe deposit report card for consumers to go into a financial organization. This report card has 30 questions, 30 questions that have come out, literally come out in every litigation that I've ever been retained on. This person, if this institution had done these things correctly, we would not be having this, this conversation about something missing out of a consumer's box. So if this consumer walked into your any financial organization and got with the head of operations or the head of the safe deposit area and said, I've got 30 questions I need to ask you. And he pulls this thing out of his pocket and puts it in front of them. If they can't answer these 30 questions with a yes response, or most of them at least, don't open a box with them because your box is not safe. I say that, and a lot of consumers are using that thing right now. And if a consumer wants to find it, all you have to do is go to my website at sds.com, sds.com, and click on the link that says news article. And in that news article link, there's 50 different news articles I've written over the years. If they'll scroll about halfway down until they hit one that says safe deposit report card, they can open it up, hit your printer, and print the entire report card and use it to go in and determine how safe your stuff really is. That's about the only way you're going to ever really feel comfortable that you, you're putting it in a place that cares about this service. This might be a tough question to answer, but how many safe deposit boxes would you say there actually are throughout the country? That's a great question. And currently, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, <laughs> surveys have been made, uh, historical surveys have been made that they estimated something like 30 million safe deposit boxes are rented nationwide, which is a lot of safe deposit boxes. But again, a lot of institutions are, are doing away with the service. They're they're downsizing. They're not putting boxes in, in new branch locations. So right now, I would say it's somewhere between 20 and 30 million. So in that area is what we're talking about as far as the vastness of this service. It's 160 years old. And what do you think is going to happen in the future where you have these large vaults with kind of empty space because they're getting rid of safe deposit boxes? They're going to turn them into a storage vault for uh, newspaper, or pens and pencils and letterheads and whatever. Uh, it's a very valuable space. It's, it's secure space. It's got some kind of fire resistant on it. So if they do away with the, this service and they start, uh, they're going to probably sell. I've seen institutions take those those boxes out. They sell them to a company that makes coffee tables out of them. Uh, they put glass tops on them. They put fancy uh, siding. They're a very unique piece of furniture if, if, if you did that. There's a lot of vendors out there that love to buy those things because they want the locks. They want the metal that's inside those things. So again, it, there's a there's a market for the actual product uh, will be available if they decide not to use it anymore. Yeah. The other day we were looking at the Empire State Building. They have a giant bank vault, but obviously the bank is no longer there, but they're using it for storage and things like that. We had one bank that uh, that closed and they turned it into a restaurant. And they made it into a special little dining area for people to go in. It was air conditioned. So they uh, for a little private, intimate type place, you, you go in the little vault to have your dinner and a quiet space. You're not listening to all the people around you. It was very unique. And it had one of the big round vault doors, so it made it even more unique. So they use it as a marketing tool. So again, there's a lot of uses for that space. And you certainly just don't want to throw it away. You just close that door and you're locked in forever. <laughs> that's that's That was yeah. my next question. It's that would like, be the um, challenge. <laughs> how common is it for somebody to get locked in a vault? Uh, I've heard of several cases, uh, and it, it will ruin your day when it happens uh, because <laughs> there's a time clock that is set. Oh. And that time clock says you can't open that door until the following morning. The, the beauty of what I'm just saying, though, there, there's, a, there's a, a way around that. There's a little latch on the bottom of that time clock that if, if you can communicate with them, and you can to an emergency ventilator that's usually required on the side of that vault, you can tell them how to operate the little trip lever on the bottom that will take all those those uh, time clocks back to zero. And that will allow somebody on the outside to, to uh, get access. But you have to be able to know they're in there. So yet usually um, these financial organizations will put some kind of telephone or some kind of communication device in there in case of an emergency. And if you ever had a robbery, that's where the robbers put all the bank employees and they shut that door. So again, it's, it's kind of scary. Wow. Because then I yeah. figure since the walls are so thick, you really can't hear from the outside or the inside. If you scream loud enough, you're going to hear those people inside that vault. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing is soundproof in there. And you will be screaming pretty loud. I know we're talking about safe deposits, but in terms of vaults, and since you've traveled across the country, have you traveled internationally and looked at different vaults and how they're made in different countries? 
I really haven't. I, I stay so busy right here in the United States. I haven't had time to, to do anything. I have been invited over there. Uh, we had a real large ball break-in uh, a couple of years ago over in London. And right after that break, $300 million worth of diamonds disappeared out of that vault because it was being utilized by a large number of jewelers to store all their excess inventory. $300 million. Uh, and these guys got away with it. They escaped. I got calls from the, that organization. I got calls from some of the institutions over there. They invited me to come over and train people on how to set up proper security. And by the time I quoted my fees for traveling to London and whatever, they uh, they decided they, they'd try to find somebody locally. Now, whether they did or not, I don't know. In the U.S., what's your favorite vault that you've seen? One that I designed in Baytown, Texas, several years ago. I was I was doing a project for the bank that was remodeling the entire facility. They were building a new building and they were remodeling their old building. But in the new building, I got a call from the chairman of the board and said, Mr. McGuinn, he said, I know you specialize in bank equipment and safe deposit and whatever. We want to find the most beautiful round vault door there is in the world. Can you help us? And I said, well, I think I can. So I got on the phone with a lot of my contacts and I started calling all over the United States and I found about six different doors. Big, massive, round vault doors, 150 years old. Uh, and I called him back and I said, I found all these all these doors. I said, when would you like to see them? And he said, tomorrow. And I said, uh, how many do you want to see? And he said, I want to see all of them. And I said, well, I'm not sure I can arrange that. He said, yes, you can. You meet me at the airport tomorrow morning at 6 o'clock. I have a Learjet. We're going to fly to all these different places. And we're going to see all these vault doors. So we flew to about four of the six locations uh, up in New York and uh, all over, down in Florida and all over. And uh, our fourth stop was a small city in Oklahoma. And when we flew into the airport, uh, the vendor in, air, the, uh, in that location met us at the airport, put us in the car, and he drove us to the police station. We all got out. We saw a police department on the front. And I said, what are we doing here? And he said, the bank moved out of here and they donated it to the city and they turned it into the police station. Uh, they've got a big vault door in there that, uh, that you, I want to show you. We walked into the most gorgeous vault door you ever saw in your life. And my, my client came in and he loved it. So I got the vendor off to the side and I negotiated with him. He wanted something like $300,000 where we got it down to a hundred. And he said, that's what I want. And I said, okay. So anyway, we bought the door. Uh, we had it shipped from, uh, I think it was Tulsa, Oklahoma down to Baytown, Texas on a rail car. We got it to his location. This thing is so heavy and the soil condition in, in his lot was so bad that we had to build a railroad track from the, the street to the location where this vault door was going to be placed. So we, we rolled that thing up and once we got it in place, he said, it doesn't look good enough. He said, I'm going to have everything gold plated. <laughs> and he spent another several thousand dollars on gold plating on it. It had to be the most gorgeous vault door you ever saw in your life. So I did some research on the vault door and found out that door moved every 25 years. It had uh, it was over 100 years old. It moved, had been moved four times, but it just, just so happened the 25-year span was between all the moves. And our move was 25 years later, too. But it, it was it's a gorgeous door. And I, I made a plaque for their open house that gave the history of the door and all the different wow. places they've been. And it, was, it was kind of a neat story. One of the neatest consulting jobs I've ever had in my life. That's really cool. It sounds like, like a fun, but like still... Very involved project. Yes, it was. It was very involved. <laughs> yeah. But I'm sure it's a very beautiful door. What other kinds of stories do you have? I mean, in terms of vaults or safe deposit boxes, what are some of the most interesting experiences that you have or stories that you've heard? Interesting cases are cases I've been retained on uh, as an expert witness, a consultant to represent consumers who have lost their things. We have a lady up in uh, Florida. She was watching her TV one night. She had she had gone into her safe deposit box sometime before, and all her stuff was missing. And all uh, the bank said they didn't know what happened to it. She filed a lawsuit against. She lost her lawsuit because of a, a, a lapse in time. So anyway, she's sitting in her living room watching an unclaimed property TV special that was being produced by the state. And all of a sudden, she sees her jewelry scroll across the bottom of the screen. And she recognizes two or three pieces of her jewelry. So she contacted the TV station. She said, can I get some information about where those pictures came from? And they, they told her what bank. And that was the bank that she had had her box in. So she contacted the officials and they went in and they found out she had reported her contents as unknown owner and reported it as past due to the unclaimed property department of the state. And they turned all that stuff over to them. And then when she sued, they said they didn't know what happened to her stuff. So they did very little research. So anyway, she got all of her stuff back. And then she filed another lawsuit against them for all of her attorney's fees and legal costs and all this stuff. So we're working on that right now. But that was probably one of, the unique, one of the most unique. And then I had another two cases in Florida where two individuals went to their safe deposit box they pulled out their container. All their contents were missing. And all that was left in their box was a broken safe deposit lock. 
in one of the, the boxes, it was a broken Mosler safe deposit box, which is a very large uh, company. And another box uh, was a Diebold broken safe deposit lock. And all these, this, these two different people, two different branches, 30 miles apart, but the same branch of a large mega bank. And so anyway, both of these people hired me as their consultant. And we have lawsuits pending now against uh, this mega bank for uh, uh, lack of security and whatever. And I, I have a feeling we had a dishonest lock, locksmith involved in this because who has a broken safe deposit box lock and who services these branches of this big mega bank 30 miles apart in these two different branches? Anyway, that was a, a very unique uh, situation. Last year, we had a unique case in California where the DEA, the FBI, the United States Postal Service, and the local police department raided a safe deposit vault, broke into the, not broke into, but they got inside the vault and they opened up and cleaned out 1,500 safe deposit boxes that belonged to consumers. And they they inventoried all this stuff and they put it in some kind of crates and whatever. And they hauled it off. And all these consumers started showing up. And then they, the TV reporters started showing up. They started calling me and we had a lot of TV specials on it. And it turned out the FBI was, was following a couple of drug dealers who were doing money laundering. And they were following them to this, this vault location. It wasn't a bank. And it wasn't a credit union. It was a private safe deposit company that is not regulated by anybody. And the ways that they opened their safe deposit boxes for the, uh, these consumers is if you walked in and said you wanted a safe deposit box, they said, what name do you want it in? And I want it in the name of Mickey Mouse. And they put that box in the name of Mickey Mouse. They didn't require any social security numbers. They didn't require any identification. And Mickey Mouse and a PIN number is how you got inside to get your stuff out. Wildest thing I've ever seen in my life. I know this because after the third TV special that came out on this, I had another client who was going to open another private safe deposit company in the same city in California. And he called me and said, Dave, I saw that on TV. Forget it. We're, we're getting out of this business completely. <laughs> and I said, I don't blame you a bit. And I get many, many calls from consumers all over the United States because of what you're, you're hearing and seeing and reading about larger banks getting rid of their service. And these people are saying, we're just going to give them a replacement uh, a location to put their stuff. And they're opening these things like crazy. And when they called me and asked if I'd like to be involved, and I said, only if we do it right. I said, if you want to do this Mickey Mouse stuff, I don't want any part of it. Because if you get raided, you're going to blame me for setting your department up like this. So I've worked with about 50 of these things, these organizations around the United States. But every one of them has promised they will follow my instructions, follow my guidelines, use my, my publications on how to run the department correctly. And so far, no, none, of them have gotten, none of them have gotten raided. How common are those private companies? How common? I get about three calls a month. That's how common wow. they are. Uh, they're consumers. They're, they're, they're large investment groups that think they're seeing a niche that's not being right. filled by the banking industry. And they want to jump on it. And I said, before you jump, I, let, me, let, me, let me give you a little book. I've got a, a book that says the pros and cons of opening a private safe deposit company. You buy this book from me. If you still want to open this book after that, I can help you. But if we only do it, if we can only do it right but not, not if you want to do it the other way. Do you think that's a good option for consumers? A good option if they're doing it right. And, that, and again, those questions, uh, that the report card would be a great thing to walk in before you actually rented a box, hopefully in the correct name and with your social security number and all the things that you should be doing. But you, you got to check it out. And, and again, that's about the only way I can tell you that you'll, you'll know how they're, actually, how they're actually running the department if they answer those questions correctly. And I was going to ask, how come they aren't regulated? Because I guess the government hasn't felt like there was a need. And uh, they're, they're going to have lobbyists to stop them if they, if they even try to do it, because it, it creates more expensive for, for them because they have to comply with all the state laws and the federal laws. And there's a bunch of those laws. I've got manuals called regulatory compliance manuals. I have one for every state in the entire nation. And every state's laws are different. So if you're not following those laws correctly and you're not following the federal laws correctly, you're going to get in trouble. And if your regulators come in, you're going to be fined and penalized for not doing it correctly. So they really don't want any regulation. So they're going to fight it if it ever comes to that. What state has the most stringent laws and which state has the least? Most states have very significant laws. Uh, I mean, Page after page after page is when I write the manuals, uh, all those laws I include and how to be in, uh, tell the people how to be in compliance with them. Mississippi, again, I, I go back there. They don't have any laws uh, that they, everybody is kind of doing something different. But again, they, they have a contract that basically spells out what they should and shouldn't do. That kind of protects them there. All, all, all states are different. 
How common is it that vaults are actually broken into? What are some well-known heists, I guess, in the last century or so? You know, is it as common to break into a vault as it may have been over 100 years ago? New York is the nation's leader in vault break-ins, and they think the uh, the mob is part of that up there. I know that because I got a, a call from the uh, TV show called Inside Edition, and they asked me, have you heard about all these break-ins up here in the state of New York where they're they're located? And I said, yeah, I have. I'm getting calls from consumers who want to sue the financial organization because their security uh, was terrible. And in those break-ins, uh, they're kind of unique. These individuals are getting up on top of the branch facilities, and they're building little black lean to uh, buildings up on top of the, the the roof and they're getting inside those brown lean to buildings and they're cutting a hole in the top of the this, the roof of those branches and they know where the vault is because they've already cased the inside they're cutting that hole right above the vault they're dropping down on the vault they're cutting the hole through there and they're they're actually getting inside and and cleaning out boxes and when the police arrive they find all these boxes on top of the roof they're all neatly uh, lined up they're all cleaned out and this, they're making some significant heights. So anyway, we did a TV special that came out real well and uh, talked about uh, what kind of security that needs to be in place in financial organizations to prevent that from happening. And some of these facilities that are being broken into are, are years and years old, uh, some of them 50 years old, some of them 80 years old, and their security, off, uh, security system stinks. It was put in way, way back then, hasn't been upgraded. Uh, they're still using a landline that can be cut uh, just by uh, with a pair of pliers. They're not using any kind of cellular security system. Uh, again, there's a lot of reasons why these, these facilities are being selected. We had a similar case happen right here in Texas uh, in a facility about a uh, 30-minute oh, drive from my office here. Uh, over a weekend, the burgers broke in. They got on the roof. They cut through. They got inside the ball. They got inside. The alarm went off, which it should go off. And when the alarm monitoring company arrived, they looked through the window, couldn't see anything. So they just assumed the vault was malfunctioning. And the banker just told them, said, leave it off for the rest of the weekend, which gave these individuals a perfect opportunity to get in there and clean out as many boxes as they could. In one of those boxes, they found a quarter million dollars worth of cash that was the bank's reserve cash that they were storing inside that vault. So again, these things are happening. Uh, right after that one here in Texas happened, I got a call from the security officer that basically controlled all the security of all those facilities. They had 10 different uh, branch facilities uh, here locally. And he called me and said, Mr. Gwynn, I want you to go out and audit every one of those facilities and find out what's going wrong. Why are they selecting us? So I spent a week traveling to all these different branches, had a little audit uh, manual with me to, to, to audit all the security requirements. And I came back and I made a report to him. I said, look, these are the things that you're doing wrong at all your facilities. Somebody some time ago decided it was against, uh, it really was a, uh, not a, worth the time to set the time clock on the vault door to make sure it doesn't open till the following So they just shut the door and spun the combination. So at three o'clock in the morning, you just go to that facility and just open the vault door if you wanted to and just make yourself at home. So again, that was the biggest thing they were doing wrong. They hadn't tested the, the security systems in probably years. All these things were listed on his audit report and a lot of changes were made right after I went and visited these facilities. So it, he, he, had, he got local TV coverage on it, which is something he didn't want. You, you just got to pay attention. And, and make sure your people are doing things right. Yeah, I had noticed um, in the last few years in New York City, there have been a lot more bank robberies and break-ins. I work in New York City, and I, at this point, refuse to go to a bank in the city. <laughs> like, I wait to, like, you know, come home and I'll go to a bank here. I'm not going to go to the bank in the city. Good idea. Um, Good idea. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's pretty bad. It really is. I never really thought about that in terms of going through the roof to get to the vault I guess my thought is that, you know, vaults are normally in a basement, but they, they may not be if there's no actual basement, right? They would just have a secure area in the building. Yeah, some of the smaller branches, it's just in the lobby over in the corner, an easy access. And some of them are just steel liner vaults. So they're easier to penetrate than a three-foot concrete vault that you have to drill through. Yeah, and then the roof is pretty easy because roofs are tend to be fairly lightweight, and that's a weak spot. You bet. Yeah. So all they have to do is just go inside the facility, case where the bank is, locate where they're they're uh, where they want to come through, and that's that's where they 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 do it. That that vault that I mentioned to you over in London, uh, they think that was an inside job because they came through a wall that had no boxes in front of it. Somebody told them go down yeah. this far, and they went down and drilled three large round holes in that vault wall that you could, they could climb through, and it was a massive, uh, thick vault wall, probably three or four feet thick. 
and they drill through that entire thing over that evening. Most of the cases that I hear about on vault burglaries, there's so, so many unique things that they knew, which boxes yeah. to break into, which wall to come through, where the alarm system was, whether it was a, a landline or a cell line or whatever. They knew all this so that it was easy by them. My house is a, a perfect example. It was broken into uh, right after they. I had to close my box <laughs> at my local. Uh, I got a little safe. <laughs> Put my little safe in my house, travel all the time. Uh, my wife comes home from work one day and finds the safe in the back of our, in our den, all broken to pieces. Windows wow. broken out on the side of the house. The alarm system has been bypassed by cutting the, the landline. And uh, when uh, she came in, she said the, the, the safe was just in a, it was a pretty uh, heavy safe, about 200 pounds. They had gone into my garage and got my tools to break into my safe. Stole all of her jewelry and a lot of cash and this, that, and the other. If I mention uh, safe to any of my family again, I'll probably get shot. <laughs> home, safe, home safe is not one of my recommendations I make to my clients. You have this report card system, so mm-hmm. and and you use that to audit different vaults and different banks across the U.S. Right? Have you ever had like seen seen something that was an A plus that was just perfect? Yes, and typically it's people that again this. Mississippi, again, is one of my favorite places to go uh, because they they invite me every year to train any new employee that comes to work for them. This all got started something like 20 years ago when I went up to Jackson, Mississippi and did a program for the Mississippi Bankers Association. And when I flew back to Houston this following day, my phone rang. And when I answered it, uh, there was a gentleman on the other end of the line. He said, he told me his name. He said, I'm president of a bank here in Biloxi, Mississippi. And he said, I want to tell you about two of my ladies that were in your seminar yesterday. And I said, yes, sir, what can I do for you? And he said, you just scared the hell out of both of them. I said, really? I said, what did I do? And he said, well, what you did is what I want you to do now is come back over here and scare the hell out of every employee I've got that has anything to do with safe deposit because I don't want to get sued. I want you to tell them the same thing you told these two ladies to help us streamline our system. I guarantee you, if anything, any ever question, he's on that question and answer hotline. If any question ever comes up, he calls me and he we correct that before it ever uh, uh, goes any further. That's probably the, the cleanest bank I've ever worked for. And, and again, it's they're training their people. That's the bottom line. If you're not training your people and you have a problem, you can't answer those 30 questions correctly. When you go into a courtroom, those are the questions that can be asked of the the institution on the witness stand. And if they can't answer them in front of a jury, you can imagine what that jury is going to say. And who feels more sympathetic with the poor consumer who has tears in his eyes talking about his coin collection that he's saved for a million years and his baseball card collection or the the, the, the banker sitting over here with pinstripe suits that are being representing the bank? They're going to they're going to side with the consumer. How often do you travel and teach people about, <laughs> you know, safe deposit? Thank goodness for Zoom. Well, because of COVID and everything yeah. slowed down and the traveling was more difficult, whatever. I started telling my clients, I said, I will do your programs for you, but we're only going to do them virtually. They agreed with that because they don't have to travel. They don't have to pay for travel expenses. We can do all the things uh, like me uh, standing in front of the audience and addressing and Q&A sessions and this, that, and the other. So my traveling has gone down to almost zero which is wonderful. Wow. That's I've been doing this for 40 years. And at, oh, yeah. at some time I was hitting three states in every week. So you can imagine how tired I was when I got home, but I don't miss the traveling at all. Thank goodness for Zoom. You were living out of a suitcase for, for a bit, huh? I just kept it packed. <laughs> just, just <laughs> you just underwear. kept it back. Yeah. Yeah. By the and, door and be like, you know, just in case I got to go this week. Yeah. yeah. Fortunately, I had a very understanding wife. She, she took good, good care of me. Since you've been doing this for 40 years, it's probably hard to even think of what you would be doing if you weren't doing this. But I'm going to ask that. If you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? Fishing. <laughs> Fishing. Okay. Uh, playing, playing golf, uh, doing something. I'm getting really, really close to retirement. I'll hit 80 years old this year. And uh, I think it's time to turn it over to somebody else. I've got a daughter that worked for me for about four years. She's about to retire as a school teacher after 25 years, and I may turn the company over to her. Uh, she's she's She used to be a banker. She uh, has taught for uh, that long, that period of time, and I think she would do a good job in, in doing what I'm doing right now uh, with very little effort. And I've still got that website with 80 products on it that I, I'd like somebody to inherit that and continue because they're, they're valuable products, and no one else offers these things to uh, the financial industry. What, what I'll be doing, I don't know. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go as long as I can. My health is good, and I'm doing fine. You know, if you hadn't gone into the banking profession, would you have 
gone into architecture? Because I think you were you said you were studying that. I had three years of architecture training. I loved architecture. And then that swimming pool incident took me away from it. <laughs> I just enjoyed drawing. And sure, I would not have been made it as, as good a living doing that, but uh, I enjoyed it. Could have could have intertwined the two, banks and architecture, design banks. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that would have, yeah. The first company I, I started when I left the bank in 1980 was a company called Consultec. That's the company that we opened 300 new banks. We were featured on the front page of uh, Fortune magazine. And the two gentlemen that I started that company are, it was a specialized art uh, bank architecture company that I had hired to come in and do an $8 million expansion remodeling project for my bank. And I was in charge of that. And they saw how much I enjoyed it. And they got me off to the side one day and said, Dave, we'd like you to join us and start a new company within our company that will have banker talking to banker. Uh, and help them with their their master plan and this, that, and the other. And I said, that's great. My wife agreed to it. They gave me a two-year contract, and I jumped out there, and it was an overnight success because no one else was doing it. I was helping them buy their equipment. I was helping them hire their president. I was doing their security systems. I was setting up their safe deposit area. And in addition to that, I was doing these seminars on the side just as uh, an additional service we could offer to the so when I left there in 1989, it, uh, the safe deposit uh, business still had grown and grown and grown. And then after I, I left there and had I could devote 100% of my time to it, it just exploded to a nationwide deal. It's very niche. So yeah, there's I think there's definitely like still room like within like working and designing banks and banking. Like we had, we had 80 people in our architectural firm and design firm and our construction management yeah. firm. I had five people in my consulting part on, under Consultech. So together, we worked together on every banking project. That's all wow. we did was banks, banks and credit unions. That sounds like like fun. <laughs> it was great. It was fun. It was a fun time. It was 10 years of fun. Wow. We had offices in Austin, San Antonio, Bronzeville, and Houston. So I made a circuit every week nice. around and around and around, just basically servicing clients. Then we started branching out in Louisiana, Oklahoma, New Mexico, and it, it just grew pretty fast. Back in 1989, when they changed the Bank Protection Act and said you don't need a vault anymore and you don't need security anymore, you don't have to do this, and you can put your boxes in the vault or in the lobby. A couple of banks on the East Coast decided, well, if we don't need to do that, let's just let the customers wait on themselves. So then they came up with biometrics. Uh, so if, if Zoe or Chandy came into a financial organization that said, I want to rent a box, they either did a scan of your hand uh, palm print or they did a scan of the iris of your eye. Or they went to a a pin machine, you put in some kind of pin number to open the day gate on the vault. Okay, that's all that was for, is just to give you access into the vault. Then they went with single key operation. They gave you two keys to a box, but the guard key, the keys that the bank would have that would be used under dual control, they did away with that. And then when you wanted to get in your safe deposit box, you came up and you identified yourself biometrically, got inside the vault and went to your own safe deposit box, unlocked the door, did your transaction, put your box back in there and left. That was self-service. And then when they came up with the idea, well, why are we building these vaults and why do we need all these pin numbers? Let's just put the boxes out in the, the lobby and we'll just let the people uh, go to the lobby right in front of the teller line. You can just line up for that too. And, uh, uh, one of the bank's clients over in Louisiana called me one day and said, we just bought six banks in the state of Louisiana, and we just found out they all have self-service boxes and scared them to death. They said, would you come over here and look at these uh, operations and tell us what we need to do? So I drove over to Louisiana, went into all six of those branches. Into one of the branches, the boxes are inside, right outside the lobby, or in the lobby, right in front of the teller line. And I asked the branch manager, I said, what is your security on this? He said, well, we have 24-hour closed-circuit TV watching those boxes, so no one will mess with them. I said, really? I said, show me how that works. So he takes him back into a supply room with the, the letterheads, the ballpoint pens, and the uh, the pencils. And we find this little shelving unit, and it has the uh, TV monitors up here. And it has the little toggle switch uh, control boxes down here. And I said, where are the boxes? And he looked up and the, the, he had about six monitors and the one black monitor was the camera that watched those boxes. He was out and hadn't been working for who knows how long. So they didn't have any film record of what was going on. So anyway, they had to correct that. The next branch I went to, the boxes were in a long hallway in the back of the facility right by the restrooms, just lining the hallway. <laughs> no security, no, no monitoring, no nothing. Uh, another one, they had taken an office space and just put the boxes, stuffed them back in the corner, and they let the people go in and out of the office space. 
So anyway, needless to say, uh, I wrote a little report back to the bank and I said, this is what you need to do. You need to spend some money because you're going to have to build vaults in every one of these branches to, to tighten up the security. And you're going to have to you're going to have to get a security system to keep the cleaning people away from these boxes at night. This is what I was finding as I travel around the United States. Went out to Colorado to do a big program out there. And one of the ladies in the audience says, and I'll talk about self-service boxes. And he said, you need to visit the bank down the street. I said, why do I need to do that? He, she said, they're offering this service 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. I said, how do you do that? They had an atrium on the front of their, their bank building that was left unlocked. And they put the boxes through the wall. And you came at three o'clock in the morning if you want to get your jewelry out with no security, no monitoring, no nothing. This is the crazy things that banker, bankers are doing out there without knowledge of the exposure that they were creating for their own institution. Self-service boxes, just frightening. Got an $8 million lawsuit that I was hired on. I got a $3 million law, and both of them they lost because they couldn't prove that they put in, they offered a service that was safe. On the $8 million, the insurance company declined coverage because they came back and told us, you didn't. You, you lied on your application. You didn't prove this thing was safe. So they're sitting there with an $8 million loss and no insurance coverage. The next one went to the Illinois Supreme Court, and the Illinois Supreme Court overruled their only defense, which was a contract that says we're not liable for any loss that the consumer had. They overruled that contract. So they, they were hit with a $3 million loss. There. So they're, they're very expensive mistakes. Yeah, because they're being very hands-off. It's kind of, you know, we have nothing to do with this. This is your box. You just go get your, you know, your valuables yourself. They are thinking they're saving money. They don't have employees involved. They don't have forms involved. They don't have anything involved. The consumers are taking all the risk. And they're, they're doing it because these salesmen are telling them, you just have to have a contract that says you're not liable for anything, which is not true. And what we were finding in some of these places that were using the palm printer, if the more jewelry you wore on your fingers, inaccurate, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the machine was reading. If you got your PIN number, thank goodness, uh, you're not going to get in. <laughs> So is it like um, there's multiple steps to getting in or is it usually just the one like a pen or or the eye scan or fingerprint? Well, the worst case was no no identification was required well, at all. Uh, and that happened in a real small town here in Texas. They called me in to do an audit. When I got inside their vault, I found a stick, one of these long wooden sticks with a key hanging off the end with a little key oh, ring no. on the end. And oh. it was hanging on a hook. And what they... You know, like you go into a restroom or you go into a service station, you need to use a restroom, you run to the door and it's locked. You run to the attendant, he hands you this key on a stick so you don't take it home with you. They decided that would make a wonderful self-service operation. So they wrote the instructions on the side of the stick. Use the key on this stick, open your box, look at your stuff. When you get through, shut the box door back up, hang the stick back up so the next customer can use it and just leave the vault. Why they asked me to go in and do an audit on this, I have never figured out because I, I took all this information to the bank president and I said, sir, I said, this is how you run your department. Are you aware of that? Oh, yeah, we've been doing that for years. And I said, well, if you ever have a case against your institution, you're going to get in trouble because I said, you're letting people inside the vault unattended, unsupervised, and they've got access to everybody else's box in there. By the way, you can buy tools on eBay. They'll open every box in that vault in a matter of seconds. A matter of seconds. So if you're in there with a guard key and you have the, the tool you just bought on eBay, you're in those boxes immediately. I told him the problem. He said, you know, Mr. Gwynn, he said, this is a very small town. I know everybody who lives in this town. Everybody in this town loves me and they will never, ever sue me. I said, OK. <laughs> They're still doing it that way. They love it. you, but still sue you. Trust yep. me. That's <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's a little scary. You know, you think that your items are going to be safe because you're putting them in a safe deposit box in a vault, but yeah, or not even in a vault, obviously, in, in some places. But, you know, it's good to know, you know, what measures um, are in place. And the checklist is obviously important for definitely having a safe deposit box and seeing if you're your own items are secure. And to just know that, you know, banks do have these audits and, and do want to make sure that their vaults and safe deposit box areas are secure and what they can do to improve as well. It's, it's good to know because I think a lot of people don't know all that much. They just know that they have a safe deposit box. They put their things in it. They have a key. They go and get their items when they want. And, and that's it. People don't really think too much about how the whole system works. That's correct. The report card is a very valuable piece of paper for a consumer. 
Yeah, and as the only person who does this, I mean, thank you for doing what you do. It's important keeping banks accountable. It's, it's very rewarding, Sandy. I, I get thank you notes from people who have been in my seminars that have gone back and they've, they've, they've made changes and uh, they feel more relieved that they're now responsible for a department that they're not going to be personally sued in. Thank yeah. you for for um, for doing this. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. You bet. We're talking to both of We'd like to say thanks to Dave McGuinn for giving us valuable information about safe deposits, vaults, and keeping your personal items safe and protected in today's world. That's it for this episode of Bound by the Cloak. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you aren't following us on social media, you should. We're on Instagram and we're on Twitter. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. See you next time. Be safe. What she said. <laughs>